I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it will be a place both wonderful and strange. Welcome to the wonderful and strange Twin Peaks Logcast. I'm Khalil, and with me today is the Ben to my Jerry. <laughs> That's endearing what you said after whatever just happened beforehand. <laughs> would you rather be the Ben or would you rather be the Jerry? Uh, definitely the Ben. Well, congratulations, you've inherited some crimes. Well, I'm I'm fine with that. Like, as far as Jerry is concerned, sure, he does travel around often enough, but I feel like he might fall into more problems, if you will, internationally. But but then again, Ben is accused about three lifetimes worth of crimes, so... Eh. Yeah. I mean, like, I was torn which one to make myself, but I, I feel like you're more the sophisticated uh, type, and I'm more of the... Uh, comic relief, you but, know? But at the same time, I'm a one, I'm someone who owns uh, the Japanese flag that we have our dear Jerry it touting around you inside are currently, his pocket. You are currently wearing a flag very similar. Yes. Uh, in honor of this episode, I am wearing something that no one else can see. This is just for us. Yeah. I mean, not even for me, though, because I don't know if I get that much out of you wearing it. <laughs> and I can't even actually literally the way you're sitting right now, I can't even see you wearing it. So it is just for yourself, which uh, what a Benjamin Horn thing to do. Thank you. Only care about your own self-gratification. Like maybe I can just be both the bo- brothers. Like Wait, who am I then? Why does that matter? I'm both the brothers. I'm Sylvia Horn, the forgotten horn that nobody ever talks about. <laughs> exactly. So uh, welcome. We're t- <laughs> We're talking about episode 15 today, also known as Drive with a Dead Girl. I don't know if that's like the action that's happening or if it's like a command. Like, uh, Okay. I know I've probably asked this a lot. Yes, you have. Who comes up with these titles? I want to know the person sitting in his cubicle getting ready to like release these episodes on one platform or another. Who has come up with these I, titles? I regret to inform you. It's Gwen. Gwen comes up with the titles. I don't know how to respond to that. This episode is written by Scott Frost, who is Mark Frost's brother, also known as the author of My Life, My Tapes, and Diane, two books about Dale Cooper, which, Professor, you are in possession of. Yes, I am in possession of those items in which I can't look at. And you're also in possession of a fourth vinyl since our last podcast? Yes, I have to correct uh, my statement beforehand. It turns out the people who had given those uh, sweet Chevron vinyls, there was a fourth one. Because it turns out three of them are just some of uh, Angelo Badalamenti's work between uh, Twin Peaks, the original soundtrack, as well as the Fire Walk With Me. But there's also two separate vinyls for the return. And that will be one. Re- return ad- the limited series event uh, season three. Yes. Which one is uh, the various artists, if you will. And the other is Angelo Badalamenti, mm-hmm. which thankfully that was sort of discovered afterwards because again i can only look so much up yeah thanks to Khalil's yeah, demands yeah. so various artists i thought angelo was amongst them sure sure uh this episode was also directed by caleb dachanel uh which is the husband to mary dachanel who plays eileen hayward you know uh donna's mom we've oh. seen her a little bit 
Yep, famous character at the dinner table and once. Also a famous character, but in our world, uh, Caleb Dashnell is also the father of Zoe Dashnell, the actress, who never appears in Twin Peaks. Spoiler alert: There's no Zoe Dashnell. No. Yeah, uh, no, right? I mean, it, they could have got her for the return. What? Or they could have got her in the original as like a baby if she existed. All I'm saying is that. Twin Peaks, if there's one thing we need more of, it's to introduce more characters. Hey, we got like, what, like four in this one? Yeah, four. Yeah, but, but, you know, in the in the words of, of Leland, we will get to know them later. Uh, I would first like to talk about our darling white-haired uh, lawyer man and his golfing. So we open the episode with Leland uh, playing some indoor golf uh, in his living room, as, uh, as you do. Uh, Donna and James come in. The, they visit and and Leland regrets to inform uh, regrets to inform them. Unfortunately, he just dropped Maddie off like maybe like twenty minutes ago, uh, and he goes and you know Sarah's upstairs trying to get his attention. And uh, when Leland's away from the room, Donna and James you know just look at the golf balls and they're kind of having a little giggle because classic Leland Palmer, am classic I right? Classic Leland. I suppose, again, we don't really know everything about him, as last episode showed you, huh? Yeah. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Leland is by far, just going to say this, by far the most threatening character in Twin Peaks. Um. And probably the most perplexing. This is my larger statement here. He, the way his mood shifts in the Great Northern later, uh, it calls into question that... How deceptive is he? Is he as deceptive as a horn? Or is this just a part of Bob leaking through that just might be beyond his control? The way he addresses the concerns of James and Donna when they're inside the home, like worrying about Maddie, what, like how much he actually knows about what he did and is conscious of it, and he offers to them, like, hey, maybe you could send a letter. Is that something that he is genuinely concerned and wants to come off well to them? Is that just another form of deception? Is this, again, just Bob? And when they go, there's a point in which Bob is seen, like, through a reflection, but not in, like, the usual smiley way. He actually has a straighter face, almost, I'd even call concerned. Well, we almost see the smiles get magnified through Leland rather than Bob this time around. Yeah, and it's it's kind of, think about it this way, like, Maybe sometimes when we see Bob, there might be a little bit of Leland in that Bob. If well, we are yeah, to see vice versa sometimes. Like with uh, Leland says, you're going to Missoula. That might have been Montana! also. That, that reflection might have been a reflection that through Bob's figure, Leland's emotions broke through. Yeah, I know last episode, your, your feeling on it was that it was a fight of struggle between the inner parts of Leland, between Bob and Leland, and that you kind of felt like there was something internally fighting here. Whereas in this episode, and I guess I'm open to what you think, this to me felt like they were more in harmony. Mm -hmm. or, at or there was almost no Leland here. Mm -hmm. if, if there is a Leland who... You know, the, is like the Leland we've known up to this point, more genuine father figure, more sincere, uh, you know, um, father, you know, of the household. Uh, if he's still there, he got buried in this episode. Yeah. Or else, uh, like you said, we just don't know everything about Leland and they're more similar, these two halves. Yeah. And it's like that old saying goes, you know, inside you, there are two wolves. You know that saying? No. You don't know that saying? Why would you it's have It's like two a meme. Wolves? It's like a meme where it's like, you, depending on which wolf you feed, that's the stronger one. And people like make memes out of that because it's it's a very overused phrase. Anyway, one of them <laughs> is a Frank Silva with like super long, like gray hair and a denim jacket. 
that's one of the wolves. And the other wolf is uh, Leland singing and dancing. See, now the joke doesn't make sense. <laughs> I overexplained it. We even had like points in which we would see the singing and dancing Leland side with this. Like again, yeah, as was, you said, he was in the Great Northern, like entertaining some guests to some song over there, uh, having a good time. When all of a sudden, uh, Sheriff Truman has to come in and break the unfortunate news that Benjamin Horn has been arrested. Yeah, and which must have broke Leland's heart. You oh, know. Yeah, that that definitely was a reaction he had because when he came around the corner, he was sweating profusely with glistening skin and just like this horrifying smile and snicker. This is strange. And I think you say it perfectly. Like it's almost as if the uh, Bob we know and the Leland we know are in harmony as opposed towards something in which uh, it's more of a melody in which like they would both bounce off Mm -hmm. from one another. So it's, definitely eerie and later on he's wanting to show his club to cooper and he holds it in a certain way that makes me concerned (laughs) and if it wasn't for cooper getting distracted he could have very well seen maddie and could have gotten caught but on the other circumstance killing jock managed to get him out of the ben's trial circumstance because after having a murder case it's kind of hard to stand as a lawyer so he could even distance himself from there and have a chance to get off scot-free. Is Crazy Bob just a force of chaos with just incredible insight? What is Bob? And when he says later about, like, with Ben being angry on the phone, talking about dairy, potentially a diary, and with Catherine's testimony and uh, Ben's testimony on, like, being together that night, how much did that go together did this event actually happen what do we believe from leland on screen what his words are and that is why leland in my opinion is the most threatening character because i do not know where leland is at even if i'm seeing a significant sum of him and not to mention like we recently watched the shining um, just not like right before this episode, we saw yeah. the shining the first time the professor has seen, uh, Stanley Kubrick's the shining. Yes. It was yes. your second Kubrick film overall, correct? Yes. You've seen a clockwork orange previously. Yes. And this is my second one. Like there's some lines I can draw with Leland as well as Jack when it comes towards mm-hmm. like a growing insanity, at least from what we're seeing from our perspective. Mm-hmm. and seeing like the mannerisms of Jack versus the mannerisms of Leland, I gotta say, I'm very, very fond of Ray Wise's performance. As you said in a previous episode, he is a beautiful, beautiful madman. Mm-hmm. I am. I'm adoring this strange. Like he he can shift and make me feel uneasy, whilst the mannerisms of Jack from The Shining kind of just border on almost Looney Tunes. I enjoy the fact well, that Looney Tunes does come through on it. The thing with The Shining that's so different, and at least in the way that Jack Nicholson is is, is acting and, and being directed to act, is that even from the beginning, the audience is heavily clued into the idea that something's wrong with this man. Yes. That he, even when he's more normal, like at the interview for the job and the walkthrough, the way he talks, the way he looks, just his eyebrow movements, the smiling, there is something a little off to him no matter what. Whereas Leland has been consistently portrayed in a very, very sympathetic way from the beginning. He has never been portrayed as, like, stable. He has been through serious trauma, and he's reacted in a very, very 
extreme ways, whether it's through the aggressive dancing uh, at like the, the Hayward household when uh, the thing was Gertrude was um, playing the music, you know, kind of aggressively on the piano as he was singing and dancing and then just collapsed, by the way, fun little thought I couldn't reveal, I couldn't emphasize it too much in the previous episode, but when he collapsed in that moment was when he was singing about Judgment Day and that's when he collapsed. <laughs> Fantastic. So again, premonitions happening there. Premonitions and when he killed horses. When he killed uh, Jacques Renault, again, initially it kind of came across as a desperate move from a father to try to find closure, but now again, tying up loose threads potentially. Yeah, there is <sighs> definitely a benefit, especially with the length of time that we spend with Leland and seeing these different forms that makes his more dramatic moments all the more stand out, if you will. This was a person that a few episodes ago, we saw him whimpering and sealing himself inside of a little chair. And in this episode, after dancing around and putting himself aside, that grin, that grin. Well, and again, no one knew outside of like, Lynch and Frost, pretty much, who the killer was going to be revealed to be if they had to reveal the killer. So, like, we know that Ray Wise didn't know he was the killer yeah. until he found out that episode. Yeah. Um, meaning that throughout the show, none of, like, Leland's performances have been necessarily fake. It's just that no one knew if they were or were not the killer and kind of had to play it that way. Now, mind you, uh, there's still that sort of sense of me, like that, one percent in the back of my head that's thinking to myself, we didn't see him kill. Yeah, we, we saw him kill Maddie, who okay. could be Laura Palmer. Right, right. In by all context, but yes, then he then, did. Then let's, for the sake of the podcast, until you feel like it has been proven to you, what I will say is, if I refer to Leland as the killer, let that be shorthand for there is a demonic spirit inside of him that drives him to do at least one killing. Can we agree on that? <laughs> we can agree Who on has that. a similar methodology with inserting letters into fingernails as whoever did whatever happened to Laura did to them. Yes. Cool, cool. Um, yeah, and it, it, yeah, it's really interesting too because there was the scene with uh, the golf clubs like you mentioned. There's so many different ways you can interpret that at this point in the show because Leland is just driving all over the road, swerving like crazy, singing his song. And as he's singing the song, Cooper starts humming it when they haven't seen each other yet. So it's like they're kind of tapping into the same wavelength almost. I think that the happened. shining started to click a little bit there. I think that <laughs> I think that Cooper tends to have that strange click. Yeah, in there's some a spiritual moments. connection kind of happening as they're driving toward each other without knowing it yet. Yeah. And then basically Cooper makes this offhand comment about how like, you know, our driver's ed course is required here. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, like a bat out of hell, like a blind puppy out of hell shoots Leland Palmer just swerving across the road. Yeah, right around a corner, too, so he didn't even have a chance to see it. Maybe hear it. Maybe the window was no, cracked yeah. open and hear it. And then Cooper made the comment of, looks like we have a dropout here. And then they pull Love Leland it. over. They pull Leland over. Again, a little bit of comedy mixed in with all this darkness. Yes. They they pull Leland over, and Leland could easily have not mentioned the golf clubs. But he basically just like, hey, Cooper, are you, are you into golf? Hey, let me show you my new golf clubs. Works around the back. And again, like you mentioned, Maddie is in her to-go bag. She's <laughs> in her to-go bag. And he is, you know, you got to wonder what was his motivation there? Because if it's logical, yes, was there a reason? Or is it like an animalistic, sadistic kind of sense where it's like, wouldn't it be fun if I do this? <laughs> and I don't, you know, I don't think either way at this point in the show, you can argue he's right or wrong. But just the idea that we don't even necessarily know his motives but it's putting such a like such a risk, like a Russian roulette kind of situation here, that if Cooper did see it, yeah, he's got Truman and Cooper both armed with guns in a public area, yeah, 
people are around. What would he have done if Cooper had seen it? Yeah, he could have hit him with a golf club, but then he got Truman there. Yeah. So it is an interesting situation. He was just either so confident yeah. or he just didn't care. Now, here's the thing uh, as well. Like, I know that you kind of gave me some strange look when I say, like, Leland is the most threatening. Whenever oh, no, I, consider- I was just kind of thinking about it, whether I can refute it or not. Okay, gotcha. Because it seems that for the most part, whenever it comes towards other people, it's usually by self-interest and calculated at the very least on what they're going to do. Like, especially with Ben Horn now inside of a little cage after he's been toppled over at the moment. Catherine mainly directing her force against Ben. John doing whatever the hell he's doing, and same thing goes with Hank. But Leland's next move... Wherever the next letter is going to lie, that's where the threatening bits come in. Because Mm -hmm. I don't know whether or not there is a sense of direction for him. And again, it it really, once you realize that Leland has this side to him, it calls into question a lot of earlier scenes, which, you know, the individual writers and directors of those episodes, they didn't know if they were setting up foreshadowing. Yeah. Meaning, like, when Leland is the one who says to... Cooper and them, I know this man, I recognize this face, back at that uh, summer ca- summer house in Pearl Lakes. Now that we know that that Leland was possessed by Bob, was that a moment where Bob was in control feeding hints? Because, you know, a lot of serial killers do that. They they give hints to the law enforcement, kind of part of the thrill for them almost. It's, again, like similar to this comments to uh, the cops on, hey, by the way, um... This happened with Ben, like, talking about yeah. dairy. Like, do we believe that statement? Well, I don't believe the dairy one. I'll get to that in a second. But, yeah, going back to that one with the Pearl, uh, Pearl House. Pearl House. <laughs> going back to the, the house made of pearls. Uh, Leland could have also been not possessed in that moment and genuinely clueless and just having this childhood memory of the scary man who would flick matches at him. I don't even and- know, like, how far does possession go? Because, again, this man is... Benjamin Horn's lawyer, how much of a straight face he has or how much intention he has, or maybe how complex his emotions are in which he would be genuinely concerned about Donna as well as James. But on the other hand, he still has something that ticks wrong in him. It's such a good element to his character that while we were feeling Leland out as a pretty sympathetic character, he's always been Benjamin Horn's lawyer. And as we've learned so much between the start of the show and the killer being revealed... We learned so much about Ben and how shady he is that once we're reminded, you do know that Leland is his lawyer, right? That kind of floods in the reality of like, oh, yeah, a guy who's this guy's lawyer probably does have some corruption in him of some kind. Mm -hmm. And then we see that scene the episode before where Leland starts giving actual advice to Ben. It really starts to click like, wait a second. attention that, that, That Leland is complicit and he associates with this man and he tries to protect this man legally how much does he know how many faces does he wear the whole stigma against lawyers being devils is unfortunately being backed up by twin beaks uh very concerning as far as like his position we know that he's one of the main i i don't think it's going to be the front desk reception individual that might get like ownership passed down if anything happens Mm -hmm. to ben but if ben gets convicted and put aside what position does that put leland in yeah so and if like Given, like, the opportunities that, well, Ben has, if in Leland's hands, what's going to happen with the Ghostwood Project? Right. So, before we get to Catherine and the Ghostwood Project and all that, uh, I I did have a question. And and I think you've somewhat answered it implicitly. But 
if this episode had happened before the killer being revealed to us, obviously they would have handled it a little bit differently because the moment we see Leland turn a corner and start making that face, it'd be immediately obvious. If I knew the alternate reality yeah. and I knew this reality existed, I would really want this reality because, again, it was so good. So here's here's my question for you. My question for you is, assume that we only would see what Cooper saw. Let's say that like when, when, uh, when the sheriff tells uh, Leland about um, Ben being arrested and Cooper's there for that. And we see the whole thing with being the driving, the swerving, but we don't see what's in the bag. Assume there was an alternate version of this episode where we did not see Leland's face. We did not see the things that reveal him as obviously the killer. Would you have bought into Leland's reaction? Um, How would you have felt? Would you have been like, this man's obviously the killer, or would you like Cooper have noticed it but not on the spot said anything about it i would say that it definitely would be something i would likely notice and really try to <laughs> initiate conspiracies like okay wait is is leland okay i don't think leland's okay at the driving especially yeah with the driving and the way that he holds the club while yeah. approaching cooper that's well, that's, that, that's, that's a an point obvious of red flag. Let's assume that we didn't see that either, because that would also be... Let's assume we see the shot from Cooper's back's point of view. We don't, you know, we're seeing Cooper in front of us. We're, we're like Leland's behind the cameraman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, we see a shadow of a club hanging over. <laughs> here's, I'm, here's what I'm going to say. I love the fact that Twin Peaks has revealed someone who could be potentially the killer. You love so, the reveal. I love it at this point, because... We're about, what, episode 14 was when it happened, and the end of season one was about seven episodes, right? Mm -hmm. That means that about the length of both, if you were to consider this, like, last season's length, yeah, we got revealed this twist. This switches the dynamic a lot on how not only the directors are going to handle a character like this, like, us knowing what he's up to mm -hmm. and him running amok, as well as what Cooper is going to do about it. I think that I can see with some people, especially with the length of a season, without an answer like this, some people might run out of steam. Like, okay, this is a bit of a longer mystery. We're going to put this People were side. getting very frustrated that there wasn't an answer by this point. Yeah. So when this was revealed and the power dynamic was shown... It has shifted the tone a little in Twin Peaks, and I think that that is refreshing. I think I really do enjoy it. And this is a, and I, and you don't know the full controversy of the statements you're making. I've alluded to it in the past, but understand that David Lynch, who is, you know, co-creator, uh, Lynch has gone on record several times saying he never wanted to reveal the killer, ever. Okay. So there is a lot of different opinions. There are a lot of different opinions about the way the killer re revealing was handled, if he ever should have been forced to reveal the killer. I've seen a lot of people take the stance that um, ABC and the executives forced Lynch's hand. Lynch, his vision was compromised. The killer should not have been revealed. It hurt the show, etc. I think that we're, I think that I would agree with that more if it was something that at the end of this series, that was the sake. But revealing it now was probably the best time to do it. Mm -hmm. So you would have preferred the show to end without a killer than the last episode suddenly give you the killer? Yes. Okay. I think that revealing the killer either in the middle or at some point to subvert the expectation of, like, this is what we've been building to all this time, not only avoids the messiness of 
I think that you put it best before the mystery, the solution of the mystery has to be as intriguing as the mystery itself, Mm -hmm. but it allows something to simmer and makes you wonder what's going to happen next. Yeah. Because you've got like a good answer now right in front of you, right on your plate. Where is this going to take this? And it's going to mainly rely on the strengths of the characters and foundations they built up to this point. Yeah, just to quickly draw it to some of the behind-the-scenes Shining discussion we were having. That was a conversation <laughs> you and I were having because I haven't read The Shining book by Stephen King, but I've heard about some of the differences between them. And without getting into it too much, there are things that are explained by King in the books that Kubrick, in his directing, does not reveal, makes it actually more unclear than the book did. And I am a fan of that because I think the answers that King provided were not as satisfying as the mystery. Mm-hmm. And I, that's kind of, again, my benchmark is that the answer has to be as good as the mystery. I think that the answer has to be good as the mystery as well as the execution of wh- how you present and the I answer. I think the answer of Leland so far has been as good as the mystery. I think that the <laughs> reveal mixed with the execution has. Yes, so. yes. Uh, before we move on to, to Ben and Jerry... I, I do want to say on the earlier point, uh, I think that looking at it now, and again, my opinions might change my next rewatch, but if I could levy a little bit of criticism on this episode, which I do like this episode, I do think that the way Leland reacted to Benjamin Horn's arrest, if we didn't know he was the killer, would have felt off versus way Leland's reacted to things in the past. It, it felt to me that Leland was faking his way through his answer about uh, Benjamin Horn, he didn't react as strongly in the moment to Benjamin Horn being arrested as I think if this arrest had happened like earlier, like three episodes ago. I think that that still is something very interesting to at least talk about because if it doesn't seem as strong, is that a sense in which like Leland feels more confident? Bob feels more confident? And again, going back to the golf clubs, Leland might be very confident right now. (laughs) But yeah, to me, it felt like a different kind of reaction than the way we've seen Leland react before. And I would think that my, my version in my head, I think I would like a version of this where Leland's actions... Uh, reacting to Benjamin Horn's arrest were a little more believable for me. So if you want the Khalil cut. (laughs) I want the Khalil cut. Uh, I'll be writing my fan fiction. It's going to be 666 chapters, and it's all from Toad's perspective. (laughs) I look forward to it. (laughs) Toad Uh, is strangely endearing to me. Like, he's only, like, had background influences and just, like, name references. But every time I see him, I get a smile on my face. Like, I, I, I don't know where it comes from. Toad is just endearing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does Toad stand for? What are the four letters in Toad stand for? T-O-A-D. What? What does Khalil stand for? Uh, exactly. Khalil? No one tried. Like, Khalil's who, just a name. Toad, who, is a, Toad is obviously standing for something. No, Toad it might be a nickname. Like, just trying to say, like, each letter has to okay, mean something. Not everyone be, makes an the acronym. has got to be the. Oh, nicknames. I'm just going to say T is the. No, no one uses the for an the acronym. Omega Alpha. So he's Alpha and the Omega. But apparently, no, he's the o- Omega and the Alpha. I know, so it's the kind end of an, and then the it's beginning. inverted. It's actually really clever if you think about it. No. The Omega Alpha Destroyer. He is the Apocalypse. Got it. <laughs> 
and don't was, try to ruin Toad for me. And you know who has experienced the apocalypse in this episode? Benjamin Horn. His uh, his life is coming crashing down. Um, I, I feel it. I feel it. Now, I have, again, made no hiding of the fact that Benjamin Horn is one of my favorite characters in this show up to this point. Uh, he has consistently been someone I've really enjoyed. And that I want to be clear that that doesn't mean I always wish him the best. I want him to be a good character and have a satisfying character arc. And sometimes that means you go crashing down. And I think that the way Ben has been toppled and the way his, ex again, execution you mentioned, Ben's acting in here, not to be overshadowed too much by, by uh, Ray Wise's for Leland, I think that Benjamin Horn's uh, plot line right now is very satisfying. Yeah. Benjamin Horn has consistently had aces up his sleeve and won by beating out people like Catherine and Josie and Hank and Leo and having people pitted against each other with Blackie and John Reno, all these different elements in the background. And he has, again, either through sheer luck or by masterful planning he has been unscathed he has ghostwood at his disposal he managed to get the tajamura funds that just kind of fell into his lap and used them to pay off josie and all these different things that were coming into place and the reason he gets undone the reason he gets arrested is because of his daughter looking into the laura palmer situation which he was not really directly controlling audrey the way he was other people and he's also undone by just like the sheer random chance of the one-armed man like reacting the way he did in the building. The things that take Ben down, and again, I could see someone not liking this. Maybe someone wants Ben's downfall to be because of Ben. He failed in some way. But I like the fact that Ben got sent to jail out of things that were pretty much out of his control completely. Yeah. Things uh, that he would never have been able to foresee. I would say that he would not be able to foresee his daughter. It's the fact that what he had done became the chink in his armor when he started considering his doctor. And as soon as, like, that chink was shown, his armor blew up in his face. He and it's is... such an immediate... It's like you're playing Jenga, and you're playing Jenga... Excuse me, no, you're playing Ghosts and Goblins. Like, as soon as, I like... I was gonna use the more common example that our audience more likely knows. Well, ex... Okay, let's, let's give both of our examples, and the audience can choose which one they want. Okay. Okay, it's I'm like right. playing Jenga with a rhinoceros. Now, what were you going to say? Yeah, because, you know, the relatable situation <laughs> well, of Jenga playing with a rhino. Well, yeah, you've seen a rhinoceros, you've seen Jenga, you put them together, what do you get? Bad news for Benjamin Horn. No, it's like Ghosts and Goblins, where effectively the when you when the weakness found, when your armor is hit, all you're left is your underwear. And Ben is now caught, vulnerable, in his underwear, in which he can be struck at any moment and that might be his fall. And like Lucifer in Milton's Paradise Lost, he is proud in his ruin. He is over here, like, cleaning the bars of his cell, trying to, like, sit up proper, trying to make the best of his situation, you know? His tie's a little loose, but he, he's he got it together the nope. best he can. No, he doesn't. Well, like, yeah, he is cleaning his, his bars. He's trying to, like, pretend it's he tidy. He is fidgety. Like, he goes straight from, like, like nervously, like, cleaning the bars straight into brushing his teeth. And I don't know about Are you. Are you the man for brushing his teeth? No, I'm talking about, like, how quick the transition is. He, This man is unstable. Like, yeah. this is not his he's, he's natural not environment. He's not in control. He's never been this powerless during the show. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't take it very well. Uh, Jerry Jerry comes into the prison uh, wearing his Japanese flag in his chest pocket, just got back, uh, you know, says to Ben, you look terrible, gives him a hug. Uh, do you interpret the hug to be very genuine? Yeah, they're yeah, brothers. Good, good. Like the they, well, I don't, but Okay, Benjamin Horn, though, is known to backstab people. He is known to backstab people. If the last person I think he's going to backstab is Jerry and vice versa. Okay, cool. Um, 
And then Jerry, uh, knowing Ben well enough to actually think it's worth asking, uh, did you kill her? Like, just straight up asks. But then rescinds his comment, basically saying, you know, actually, you know, I shouldn't have said that. The no, last no, thing a good defense attorney needs to know is the truth. I, I don't think he fully rescinds that. It's just more so as, like, just not knowing the truth. It's like... He's almost like implying like, okay, well, Ben, you've done a lot of things, so yeah. I, I probably he shouldn't He wouldn't last. put it past him. Uh-huh. So while it is kind of warm warm to think, oh, they have this beautiful brother relationship, it's based on mutual understanding that one of them could murder a high school student at any given moment. Yeah. And what what are family, <laughs> what's family for if not to cover up for murder? Um, family? Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> and, and Jerry also, uh, you know, I give Ben credit. Either in his desperation or his his wanting to support his brother, he he brings Jerry on as his representation in a legal capacity. And Jerry doesn't know if it's twenty four hours or forty eight hours. They can hold him without a without charging him. I love the scene in which basically he says that he's going to have to act as his lawyer, um, just because of course everything with Leland. Yeah. But yeah, he, he literally like in the middle of the conversation picks up from it, his suitcase a literal book of criminal law <laughs> and starts flipping through it. And then uh, once like Ben starts talking, he just tosses it like carelessly back into the suitcase. Let, let's let's it, face it. If this was modern, if this show had been set in more modern times, he'd be on his phone with Wikipedia open right now. Like Jerry is so not good with his stuff. Like but he, he has a thing, it's so impressive. <laughs> it's still impressive that if he did go through with effort, I don't know if he ended up doing anything shady, but if he did put for his effort, even if he's the last in his class, even if he had uh, passed the bar after three attempts, uh-huh. even if he is banned in four states from practice, <laughs> that still takes a lot of work. Yeah, it, good job, Ben. Good, no, good Jerry. No, Jerry, good job. Well, good job, Ben, for putting up with this. Good job, Jerry, for doing it, I guess. <laughs> Uh, and then they're 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 kind of reminiscing about their bunk beds, their first room together, where Jerry was on the top bunk, Ben was on the bottom bunk, and we get Muppet Babies, and we get Louise Dombrowski. Why are you bringing up Muppet Babies right because now? Because it's like checking out the baby lives of the Muppets, but in this case, it's the Horn Babies. You know, I think I think even by my standards, you're stretching it right now. No, no, no. This is the prequel I wanted, like to get flashback moments to see the past, and we just get this fun. Oh yeah, you wanted a flashback episode since like the end of season one. Yeah, like, one that's of where things. the Muppet Babies you got, came from. You got from. five minutes of it. I got five minutes. Hopefully, we'll get more. Uh, I look forward to if we get a, do get a chance, but this is a promising point. Okay, in which we see. That that, uh, what was her name again? Louise Dombrowski. As far as Louise Dombrowski goes, we get to see her dance around with flashlight in this very eerie, flashy scene. It looks like it very eerie? choppy. I didn't think it was eerie at all. I, I, it's eerie not in, like, tone, but visual. Like, it's mm. choppy, it's silhouetted. It's something that not necessarily causes unease, but definitely has a feeling of strangeness to it. And mm. at the same time, it might just be that dreamlike quality we keep bringing up, especially with Jerry. I think it's more, the, the way I interpret it is that we're seeing it filtered through their hazy memories and the way that maybe they would have perceived it in their younger ages. Regardless. It was a sort of mysterious scene. I don't get eerie from it. Regardless. I, I do get Audrey from it, though, because <laughs> I think she looks like Audrey. Eh. It's not the same actress at all, don't worry, but I think that the hairstyle combined with the idea of dancing has her echoes there. Uh, the dancing is nothing like it. I, I suppose we'll just, Agreed to disagree on both our ends. But regardless, we do get a sort of look at the younger horns, if you will. Not as choppy as the pride, like what they're looking at inside their memory of this silhouetted flashlight mm-hmm. girl. 
And yeah, no, it looks like they're having a good time. And it prompts Jerry to ask, you know, I think it was Jerry, Lord, what's become of us? Now, <laughs> which is just very intriguing whether or not they see that as the highlight of their lives and uh, what they've come to at this moment or what you want to interpret from that. I, but I think it's I a do. really beautiful idea that that is a highlight of their lives. Like Perhaps, but it before... It says you... something very interesting about their characters that that's a memory they both hold very dear. I suppose so, but there is this very... Like, it. I don't know if they're around the same age. I Like, it looks like someone who is maybe a couple years younger than where we are with Audrey and so on, but the horn boys kind of look like they're in oh, their early teens. Look like they're in their early teens. Mm -hmm. Maybe this individual was like a babysitter or maybe. maybe it was just someone who somehow snuck in. I wonder if we'll ever get to see more of this Luis in the future. And I wonder too, I even though I've seen the show. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I think it's interesting that these two boys probably just about to enter puberty, um, if not very early stages of it. Uh, one of their kind of strong memories was this scene of this woman or young girl, whatever old she was supposed to be, um, dancing in the darkness with this flashlight, sort of that mysterious unknown idea that they together, right with each other, were able to witness kind of from that distance, knowing the kind of people that Ben and Jerry became and knowing what One-Eyed Jack's kind of is with its sense of mystery and sensuality, there's that sense in which there is a very pure origin. And again, I would say it's pure. I mean, if nothing else, it's a very normal origin. The idea of these two boys just kind of in wonder at seeing this, like, um, girl they find attractive at this age where they're kind of just awakening these feelings. Again, yeah. pure or normal, whatever you want to call it what it's become twisted into, which again prompts that Lord, what have we become kind of question, which mm -hmm. it doesn't even necessarily get lingered on long enough for them to even issue if they have regrets, but it's that you can tell that something got twisted along the ways. Yeah. Um, also thought it was kind of funny that when they're drawing blood for, for, you know, DNS, DNA testing and stuff, Jerry's like protesting, you know, never in all of my years of practicing law have I seen, you know, a client so horribly mistreated and Ben's like, ow, you know, at getting his blood drawn and stuff. And it's like, yeah. it's just reminders that for how strong Ben is in the realm of like manipulation and control from a business standpoint, he is not like a very, he's not a man used to pain. I think that we have he's seen- He's fragile. Yes, I think that is telling with, how he treats blood. We've seen people treat blood in all sorts of ways on whether they lick their wounds, apply to lipstick. Immediately after, like, uh, Ben gets access to his hand again, he quickly just shoves it inside of his mouth and just gets rid of it. As if, like, yeah. we do see that sense of that, fragility That's a great there. comparison, though. Yeah, how much stronger, at least physically, in the sense of their, their pain senses and their ability to mask their emotions, people like Josie and Hank are when it comes to something like that. Um, or even Jonathan slash Mr. Lee. Uh, I do also find it funny the uh, the moment where uh, Jerry's giving his expert advice of when they show the diary and uh, they ask what it is and Jerry whispers into Ben's ear, a book. And then Ben, you know, processing that, yeah, it's a book. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, just, I, I don't even think he processed it because it was like a millisecond of, he, afterwards. He just repeated it verbatim. Like, like, it's almost like he's just like rolling his eyes while Jerry just tries to help. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's why I get anyway. And, and then There's we get, also the question that with all this sort of like what happens with blood, in the Twin Peaks Blu-rays, you get to see like these instances where a theme is shown in each of the discs. One of them the, will show uh, from from A to Z collection. Yeah, uh, from Z to A collection, we also see the same menus inside of Your Complete Mystery. Okay, collection. so they both. I wasn't sure the menus are the same. Yeah. Cool, cool. So 
there is a like there would be a theme like it people would talk about coffee people would talk about cherry pie people would talk about notes i'm waiting for the one in which like it's uh having a uh, little fun jovial music well it's like there's all the instances of like blood <laughs> just like tiny bits of blood where people are sticking it in the mouths or all over the place like we see nadine like touch around with her bloody hands on the mm-hmm. milkshake mm-hmm. so yeah i'm excited for that menu if that is to come yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, I also thought it was interesting we get cold Cooper back. We haven't seen uh, Cooper in that sort of cold, I mean, detective mode, I guess you would say, like interrogating mode, really since the beginning of the show. It's been very infrequent ever since then. And seeing the way he handles Ben, the sort of terse, abrupt, kind of in control momentum that Cooper has when he puts the serious face on. Yeah. My question for you, Professor, knowing yes. what you know of Cooper currently, yes. do you believe that when he enters that sort of mode, when he's questioning Ben, when he's questioning James, when he's questioning Bobby, when he assumes that, do you believe it's like a mask he puts on at will, that it's, it's kind of like a thing he can just like put on, take off, that it's it's not really necessarily his real self, but an act he puts on? Or do you believe like it is real? It is a part of him that just doesn't get brought up very much. Like it is, it is also kind of always hidden there. I think that there's always a point that everyone can relate to, that when you kind of get dressed and get up and go to work or do something familiar, you'll have a mannerism and position and mood and voice that can differ a fair amount mm-hmm. from any sort of mood you might have at home or with friends or doing a different task entirely. I think that there's this professionalism and understanding the weight of his position that comes in with sitting in these interrogation rooms. Mm -hmm. I don't recall many points in which we see the softer Cooper like inside of his bedroom at any point inside of these hall, this room in Mm -hmm. particular, especially with Leland. So... So, again, just to clarify, do you believe it is an act that he is totally putting on this sort of act that isn't really necessarily his real self? Or do you believe it's something that is always true within him but just doesn't show out very often? I think that it's just a mode that he goes into. I don't think that it's any more less or true or false than... The guy who's freaking out over the different trees that there are, the Douglas fir. Exactly. Douglas he firs. is on the job. So the Douglas firs side of Cooper and the side that is... Uh, being an honest friend to Audrey and the side that is being very cold in a in a interrogation situation, all equally Cooper. Yes. Okay. Cool. Cool. Um, someone who is who is treating Ben in a not so cold but very jovial manner uh, are Catherine and Pete in this episode. Cold oh. maybe in their actions, but oh. having a lot more fun than Cooper is with it. Um, I I really just want to take a take a moment here to say that uh, Catherine is not someone that I've talked a lot. About, I don't think even you really have as much professor. We talk about her when she's relevant to the story, but it's not like Ben where I'm just over here gushing and, and adoring her character arc. Because like Josie, we've mentioned in, in the past how there's characters who are unclear. We're never really sure if they're good or bad or what to make of their intentions. Yeah. There's just not enough there to be confident on that I don't know how I feel when I'm watching them. I just know they're doing things. Uh, I want to say that I really enjoy Catherine right now. I really enjoy what Catherine's brought by being Tajimura for like three episodes, waiting it out, being in the room when Ben gets arrested to see him fall, and then the way she's reconnected with Pete to to speak through the the recording, I I really thought it was entertaining. I really yeah. did. Um, 
So we get this part where uh, Truman is uh, uh, in his office. He's watching through these binoculars, this uh, pileated woodpecker. Uh, Pete comes in and admires the bird. And, uh, you know, because they're both outdoorsmen of some degree. Uh, Pete talks about how Josie left with no goodbyes, uh, tells Harry that he loved her, which however you want to interpret Pete's words of loving Josie. Like, uh, I think that that's good that they keep it vague enough in which it's like either confessing that, yeah, he had feelings as well, or if it was a confession of being like, we both loved her in a way and it sucks what happened. Yeah, and Truman took it okay. He wasn't like jealous or upset or anything. Um, and I kind of feel like what Pete was doing next, I don't know. I don't think Pete is the kind of guy who would have come up with this on his own. So I think it's Catherine kind of telling him to do this, but on his, you know, obviously we find out later that Pete's real reason for being there was to go to Ben's cell. But on the way there, he goes to visit Sheriff Truman, bringing up Josie. And I guess I get the sense of getting information out of Truman. As well so, as Mr. Lee and... Uh... And Pete's in a unique position where no one's going to suspect Pete of trying to get information from, you know, the, the the sheriff that he's not supposed to have. So just by bringing up Josie, which is obviously something that Truman cares about, he does learn about the Mr. Lee Jonathan switcheroo name problem. So he learns that, the, that kind of going by multiple names, learns a bit more about the circumstances going on mm-hmm. and knows what Truman knows now which mm-hmm. might be important for Catherine. So it is kind of like, I feel like Cap, you know, Pete's being sent out to, uh, to do Catherine's work, but I don't even feel bad for Pete because I think he's enjoying it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that we can even put into question a little bit on Pete because yeah. this is a side we haven't seen much of him. Now prior, like he's thinking that something is a little bit iffy as well as Truman. So I'm sure that one or both of them you know, will act in the near future. But when we move on to the point that like Pete goes into the cell of Ben, there's this like, like, he's getting prepped up. Like, I, he is actually in pretty much a very good mood, Pete. And he's getting ready this little tape recorder while Ben's being sarcastic. But as soon as he plays it, oh, boy, the golden goose appears in front of Ben's eyes, stating that, ho, ho, hum, oh, Laura Palmer's murder, you know. Oh, we were making love, were we? I don't know. My memory's iffy. And meanwhile, like, Pete is like, kind of like poking at Ben like mm-hmm. through the gate going off and it's like oh come on Benji and just like dancing around <laughs> uh the outside end it's it, it is so strange to see this side of Pete but at the same time it's kind of refreshing as well well and I was, I was make a joke here that uh, I've recently been getting caught up on the MCU films I, I never watched the Marvel Cinematic Universe films until very recently uh and I was going to make the comment that Pete, you know, of all the Twin Peaks characters, he's obviously a Loki figure. You know, he's obviously the god of mischief in this in this episode. Ghosts and goblins, uh, the shining. We're, uh, we're dropping all these. OK, to be Thor. fair, for us, this isn't that bad for references because we've made some weird references in the past. We have. This is, this is, you know, there's something for everyone. MCU is very wide net of appeal. <laughs> I think we're going to get something. Jenga. Most people have played Jenga or heard of a Jenga. They've seen a Jenga. They've smelled a Jenga. They might even have tasted a Jenga. You don't really know what people have been up to with their Jengas. Um, <laughs> Whatever you uh, want to do with your Jengas, please let Khalil know at snakeeyedreams at gmail.com. But when we do see Pete... He does make the comment uh, after smooching on the tape recorder. <laughs> She's she, a caution, doesn't she? Like, that was how? terrible. That was a terrible beat. 
I don't know how to say that. I know. And to be honest, the reason I can't do that impersonation is it doesn't feel like a Pete line. It's such a weird thing for Pete to say. We only know so much about Pete. And at this point, like, why did Pete fall in love with Catherine? Was Catherine a different hey. person or was Catherine exactly the same? And stuff like this is what Pete might Pete expect. is a grand master chess player. Okay. He may be. He may be. Um, I love the way he just kind of does that slow turn. He kind of drops the smile, has like this sort of mischievous, like almost neutrality on his face, like a menacing face to him. And then he slowly turns and almost like hunchback waddles out of the room kind of. It's just weird. Like the way he leaves the room is so much more dark and menacing than the way I would imagine Pete. I'm imagining that by the end of the Twin Peaks series, we are going to have a standoff against everyone in Twin Peaks. Everyone's going to have a gun pointed at someone else. And well, yeah. actually, I, don't, I didn't want to spoil this, but I guess I'll just reveal the ending of the whole thing right now. Uh, there's actually different <laughs> factions. It's kind of like Twilight. There was like Team Jacob and like Team Edward, but it's like that. But it's also the Avengers. It's like they're really powerful. Right. But they're fighting over the love interest. Uh, that is Lucy. Right. It's going to be Team Andy, Team Dick Tremaine. And this is where the, the some spoilers come in because the rest you could have predicted already. Right. Then there is Team Pete. Okay, he has eyes on Lucy too now. And then Team Toad. And of course, I've, I said earlier Toad's real identity, so you know how this is all going to plan out at the end. Beyond Khalil torturing me, having me choose between Pete and Toad. Which one is going to get Lucy's affections? And I think no matter who comes out at top at the end, whoever wins Lucy's affections, uh, it'll be the most um, sultry and passionate romance in the series. No doubt. In second place, maybe, is Bobby and Shelly, who continue to shower each other with, with affection. Uh, and you have never, you've never reacted with uh, an upset reaction the way you always would with James and Donna and Maddie and their stuff. Because at the very least, with Bobby, like, the dynamic is far more interesting with this, even though he is being very irritating at this point. In fact, the way that he actually behaves like a parasite almost makes me iffy, in which, like I said in the previous episode, where who's owls and who's not owls, it, it, it kind of turns my eye to Bobby just because of his literal parasitic nature. I really feel like Bobby was changed quite a lot from season one. And I don't know if that was intentional or just kind of the writer's... He was, he was left in, like, the C-tier category of importance for a long time. It seems like he might be getting more important now that we have this cassette tape. We had some mild parasitic matters some, with Leo. Some mild, but now, you know what I mean? Like, he hasn't been as active in the main storyline. Yeah. And as a result, he's kind of fallen aside. Uh, what do you think of Bobby's bandana look, by the way? What, what do you think of that? He's wearing a bandana. Look good on him or no? Or? I don't know. How does Pete's shirt look today? I think Pete looked fine. I think... Uh, I think we both had a conversation a little bit earlier about Hank's tie. I um, I think in terms of the best looking, uh, obviously Toad. I think Toad looked good in this episode. I think uh, the domino tie for uh, for Hank. Uh, I really, I mean, we'll honestly, get to that. near the very end is Bobby's bandana. I'm not a fan of Bobby's bandana. You're not a fan? It's not, it's not a look I really vibe with. It, let, let him wear what he wants. I mean, he's. I never said he couldn't. Yeah, let him. But I'm also allowed to express my opinion on what he wears. Mm-hmm. Don't don't be cruel to him. Hey, I mean, person obviously, if he likes his bandana. Obviously, Shelly's into it. You know, she comes into the room covered in like red positive. sauce, covered in like red sauce, which looks, you know, again, blood like. Um, comes in there and Bobby kisses the the sauce off her upper chest area. There's like puts like the letter on this filthy counter. The letter he's going to give to Benjamin Horn because in that cassette tape, that which by the way was in the boot. Which by the way, 
he doesn't really leave like his name or an address no. or any contact no. with it. It just says, "Hey Ben, we need to talk." Who's we? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, we were out, we were kind of speculating earlier whether Leo was aware or not of what was going on when he kept saying new shoes and redirecting them toward the shoes. Well, now that we know that what the cassette tape has, another way that it could be interpreted is that if Leo is doing this on purpose, it might not be to help Bobby. It might be to get back at Ben. Oh, actually, I think that I do understand because it seems that he was re-recording the tape onto a separate tape just so that mm-hmm. he'd have a copy. And maybe he'll send that also. It looked like he already closed the envelope, but hey, yeah. maybe he'll pop, pop I, it. I also want to point out that if Leo... The fact that Leo recorded his conversation with Ben shows more tactical, like, foresight than anything we've ever seen Leo Johnson do. He actually thought to record the conversation that could incriminate Ben. For how many times, like, Leo may have been involved in crime in general, I think that maybe past experiences have been telling. He, again, he, he the, the law enforcement knew he was shady, but they couldn't pin anything on him for years. Yeah. So Leo is not as dumb as we might, like, suspect. He, he, there is a sense in which he does have some plans. I don't think we ever accuse Leo of being dumb. Just in my more heart, so. I kind of did, I guess. <laughs> maybe maybe I didn't vocalize that as much. No, I, I, I've always just thought of him as a force of nature. So seeing like something this tactile still oh. is comes off guard to me. You know who else is a force of nature? The person Shelley? who comes up with uh, these episode titles, uh, Lucy's sister, Gwen. No. No, we're good. Let's move on. No, no, no. no next she, section. She is someone. Clearly Let's she's go good. forward. Clearly, she's good at naming things accurately because she sees the Native American man and calls him Eagle Eye. So she has a she has a knack for names. Why did we need Gwen? Like, like, like Lucy, um, Lucy we went a off. Quota, quota of new characters, you know. Lucy went off to see her sister and her uh, brother-in-law. Yeah, and just That's to check out the plot of Fire Walk with me. You don't know that yet, but the plot of Fire Walk with me is Lucy and Gwen. I, I was thinking that she's come back, you know, after that, and maybe those phone numbers, maybe it was a front to something. Yes, this does confirm that the baby's real. But why did we need Gwen? Why? I mean, you, you've never really reacted that way with any new character before. So I'm curious, what makes Gwen the why situation when, like, uh, Clinton Sternwood, the Viking cowboy, uh, the new characters we meet in this episode with, like, Vivian and Ernie we're going to get to in a moment, with all the new characters we've seen at various points in this season who come in and come out, some stick around, some don't, why is this the first why? Okay, uh, for one, she comes in after having baby, and... It's something which, like, when you visit someone, I don't expect you to usually come back with them. So it's like, okay, well, that's strange, but you know what? New character. All right, let's see how this goes. The comments that she kind of has with Hawk as well as Andy later on leave me more than just a little uncomfortable, uh, especially when she refers to, like, having a son as, like, having this worry that, oh, no, I've got another guy that's just gonna run around with his sperm kind of shooting it about and i at first just think to myself okay maybe she's just making this as a joke but no her follow-up line is just like showing a sense of sincerity with it this person has no boundaries ends up sticking her nose in like private matters i mean gets offended at those moments and constantly just kind of says things that can come off as kind of little bit like Frustrating? We all know a Gwen in our lives. 
Maybe, but that doesn't make me feel any more welcoming to a character that, again... Hey, I look forward to Gwen warming up to you and your, her being your new favorite character. Uh, I'm sure that when she finds out with her second husband, Dick Tremaine, uh, that uh, fondness is kindled and they go off to have uh, great times together, I'm sure, yeah, that things will be great. How, how did you feel about Vivian and Ernie? Vivian, they're also new characters. Ah, uh, well, for one, Vivian didn't have a good first impression with me. She uh, stole mashed potatoes from Toad in order that, to try to make honestly, a point. Toads, taters deserve justice. They do. They do. Like Toad should have either stood up for himself or Norma should have stood up for Toad. Someone should stand up because this man had his potatoes taken just because Vivian couldn't believe her own daughter. Like, at I mean, face well, it is a strong way to characterize Vivian that she would have the audacity of just reaching over with a fork, grabbing some random person's taters, and be like, mm, they're pretty good, and just like not apologize, not say anything, just like eat the taters I, like she owns the place. Yeah, it's like. I would just and go. And she owns Toad. Apparently. <laughs> no, and like it could just be like a sense of like, I'll just make you some mashed potatoes. Just give me five minutes. I'll, I'll show you. But no, um, she takes off the potatoes. She kind of has like these backhanded compliments for Norma. And she continues to have a conversation. Well, uh, her new husband, Ernie, was it? Ernie Niles. Ernie Niles kind of is off in the background. And he, he's taking care of a phone call, of course. There's still that concern that he does come back saying, like, he has some business going on with Tokyo, which we've had Tokyo referenced earlier mm-hmm. with Catherine. So makes me curious on that. But it's more so my biggest concern is what he hands to Norma, because you see that he has a paper in his hand and he puts a paper right in front of Norma. Like, mm-hmm. right front and center, there is no way, like, Norma can overlook it, and it doesn't seem like it's something like, oh, I forgot my paper. No, it looks mm-hmm. clearly that like it brings it forward, and what note does it say on that paper? It says $1,000, Houston by three. Now, I don't know if this is a Biff situation, and he personally has a almanac that tells us... Ooh, another reference. <laughs> ...that tells us what exactly uh, the betting odds are. We're so cultured. Yes, yes, yes. I don't think it... Was it football? Was it a sports almanac? I think it was. Yeah. But yeah. Like, him get, dropping this in front of Norma, how... It, it goes back into questions of what way back when, when I was... Casting suspicion on Meals on Wheels on how much we should even trust Norma. Mm-hmm. I continue to have to ask that because she did run off with Hank. We don't know how involved she was with Hank's past. And to be given, like, this idea or this special code or whatever it may be, just regardless, betting on a sports game and guessing the score and just having that handed in front of her, it makes me suspicious. I think there's kind of this running theme through our commentary, and particularly with your commentary this episode, uh, knowing more about one member in a relationship calls question into the character of the person who was friends with them, is family with them, is in love with them, because what do we take from the idea that Norma fell for someone like Hank? Uh, just as much as we're talking about stuff with Jerry, with Leland, and what that says about them with their engagements with uh, with Ben, with uh, what does it say about Pete that he fell for Catherine? Um, you know, are these fairly innocent people caught in the webs of more treacherous people, or is there something in you know this individual that falls for that? Again, someone like Shelley fell for someone like Leo. Is there a darker side to Shelley that allowed that, or Shelley purely a victim? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have enough information to answer. Obviously, we want to be careful not to victim blame. We don't want to make it seem like, oh, well, clearly they deserved what they got because they went with this person. We, we need to be clear we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think it is an interesting point to bring up that these past engagements, they follow you. It always weirds me out when I see people, um, you know, comment about their exes and yeah. comment in such a way where it's, oh man, they're just so terrible, like making fun of them or talking about how bad they were. And don't get me wrong, you can have a terrible ex, that happens. But this was someone you were probably at one point in love with, like one of the closest people in your life. It's, it's, it's interesting to think about how readily, pe- how readily people are to pretend that that never was something appealing to them. This mm-hmm. terrible person who you now hate that was a part of you and yeah. they left a part of themselves on you. And the part of you that fell for them is still there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you know, it does make you wonder, you know, what part of Norma allows herself to give Hank all these second chances. Yes. And that also c- connecting with Ernie as well as Hank, mm-hmm. Ernie himself, um, Class later out. on, <laughs> There's so much in a name. Vivian just sounds like kind of a stuck-up name. Like, that's just the connotation, at least in in my knowledge of media and my knowledge of culture. Vivian sounds like some stuck-up kind of character. And Ernie Niles just sounds like he's one of the bros. You know, oh, good old Ernie. He's like your uncle. I don't know. There could be other, like, put, let, let, let's put a, up a few, like, say, for example, Ernie Niles, ace detective. No, I don't no? feel that. You don't feel it? I don't feel that. Ernie Niles, crocodile hunter. Uh, she, she did it because of Nile. You just did it because of Nile with the Nile River. <laughs> that's why. That's the only reason you did it. What about yeah. Ernie from uh, Sesame Street? Forgive me for a pun. Forgive me for playing with words and I, trying to make connections. Oh, no. I'm sorry that I am not so lol random to your face. I don't appreciate puns. I don't so anyway, appreciate you. What I do appreciate, though, is that Hank was insistent that they meet up at 830 Sharp. Even when Norma was like, I don't know if we should do this. Hank's like, no, we'll be there. He's insistent after Norma's mother's insistent with Vivian. In which, let's face it, like, Vivian putting up this offer means that she's insistent to a degree. But she doesn't know. is Norma. But which she doesn't know, or as far as we know, she doesn't know about, like, everything with Ernie in his past. And this also got caused a little bit of confusion because... Ernie, who also gave this note to Norma for whatever reason, has also stated that he wants to go clean. And he mm-hmm. also states with Hank because apparently they have a past connection. And he, he, he notices that he has a different hair color, too. Mm-hmm. I really his, want to know what Ernie's former hair color was. But we do know Ernie's former name. Yes. The Professor. Ernie, the Professor Niles. Yes. <laughs> Are you telling me something, Professor? I'm, I, I'm, te- I'm telling you nothing. I've just dyed my hair recently, so. Oh, no. Anyway. I, I do want to believe that Ernie Niles had, like, bright blue hair. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking, like, classic mid-late 2000s, like, scene hair. And, like, he had, like, really long, poofy blue hair. That's mm-hmm. what I like to believe Ernie Niles looked like in the slammer. <laughs> um, but Regardless. yeah, no, he, he claims there's no angles. However, Vivian is putting him in charge of her investments. Yeah. Which is, you know, concerning place to be for a man who seems tempted by crime. Yeah, but at the same time, he's just like out of all the people to state, like going clean to. Telling it to Hank, who, again, had this history for I somewhat believe he might be trying. There yeah. might be like points in which he may be faltering. But, again, that earlier note, there's something that yeah. bothers me about Ernie. And also, something bothering me about Hank, because Hank continues to 
entice, seeming like a character that he seems genuine in his attempts, trying to escape, keep his head above the water. Oh, he's very good at manipulating. But his power plays with Ernie, like when like uh they state like Vivian doesn't know about uh-huh. my past, and when uh Vivian starts walking towards it, he's like, "We're gonna talk later, Ernie." But I'm glad that you're back, you know, butt to butt, prisoner to prisoner, really loud, like, like right louder. as they walk, like by. he's raising his yes, voice very deliberately. And, and the they, thing he says before that to uh to Ernie is. Family is the most important thing in the world to me. Yeah. One must be ready to pay any price to protect it. Yeah. Do you agree? (laughs) (laughs) And now that he has this leverage over Ernie, he knows something about Ernie that Ernie does not want Vivian to know. And there's also the elephant in the room that is Hank came back after 48 hours. And last time we saw him, he had a gun to his back held by good old Jacques Renault. Jean Renault. Jean Renault. Jacques Renault bit the bullet, baby. James Renault. Jaloux Renault. Whoever you want to, Je and Renault, regardless of Renault caught him. Je croissant Renault. No. You can cut the French out if you want later. Thank you. <laughs> can I at least do Je Crepe? <laughs> Why? <laughs> anyway. Je Paris. <laughs> But he came back, and who knows what conversations were taken off from there. Mm -hmm. What Hank considers family, and maybe even a history with Jean. Hopefully we'll get these answers soon. I mean, if if family family equals blood is thicker than water, uh, we might consider Josie part of his family. Yeah. (laughs) For all we know. I mean, we might be like (laughs) quite the motley crew, but he has gotten plenty of connections for himself trying to keep his head above the water. There's also the thing that bothers me the most is the domino tie. Uh, Hank has a domino tie on. Yes, it's four this time. Two fours. And... When do have we seen bolo ties before with a um, gambling casino. aspect to it? Exactly. Mm-hmm. The last place where he was, a bolo tie with uh, gambling paraphernalia, but instead of something like dice, this is a set with dominoes. I do just enjoy the in-world absurdity that, like, he had to find a way to incorporate dominoes into his attire. Or it just might be something extra that he got during his 48-hour stay. I'm, I don't know. I'm waiting for next appearance. He's wearing, like, a hat that, like, clearly he stole from someone who works at Domino's Pizza. I think that... <laughs> just I, wearing it over his outfit. I think more than anything, it's a communication to the audience, and I could mm-hmm. be completely wrong, that Hank has taken up a new employer after mm-hmm. his talk. That's a good theory. Can't confirm nor deny, but I like your thinking. Yep. Like you're thinking. I mean, again, like, point me in a direction of different bolo ties, and I'll see what I can pull out of my butt for that. The, on- the only person I would think that could properly point us in the right direction is the one about whom it is said without chemicals he points. Which would be because, again, it seems Cooper's been wrong multiple times. He uh, hasn't got his ring back yet. And we're keeping that man off chemicals pretty hard right now because <laughs> we have him cooped up, pun intended, in the Great Northern, just, like, basically... A, a rabid drug dog just waiting to sniff out whenever uh, Bob reappears. They just keep him locked up in this room. They have a nurse watching. Uh, she's popping up her bubble gum as, the, as we cut to the scene of the one-armed man. He asks for a glass of water. Clearly, it is Mike in charge at that moment based on the quality of the voice. Uh, she leaves, and who would have thought it would happen? When she leaves, he tries to make a break for it by attacking the officer, says he's sorry, whether mm-hmm. you believe him or not, and then escapes out the window. Yeah. And by the way, have we ever complimented just like how, how like how much range uh, the, we have not? Yeah. Honestly, well, we should. You're right. It's overdue. 
Yep, as far as it goes, between Mr. Gerard as well as Mike, just the sheer sounds alone and yeah. how he plays off both characters is very impressive. This is a person that I would probably expect to do an Alan Cummings situation where he does like a one-person show uh, on like a stage, if you will, playing all the characters. He, he's got some insane range on yeah, him, and that's cast, awesome. The casting in Twin Peaks in general is extremely strong. Mm-hmm. Um, extremely strong. And I think it's easy for um, someone like the one-armed man to get overlooked at this point in the show. And earlier, you know, Frank Silva, who is Bob, just has to appear and look like himself. Yeah. There's only one time that, like, Bob has said anything, and that was in Cooper's Dreams. And I don't know about <laughs> you, but, like... It's weird seeing, like, hearing Bob talk. He's not known for, like, actual dialogue. It's just by looking like that. And that there's still strength in that. There's strength in that. But I think that the, the you know, the acting for Philip Gerard and Mike requires such a contortion of the face and body and everything involved with his personality switch that, yeah. again, kudos to him. Just as much almost as Ray Wise. Yes. Um, they're incredibly talented actors. Um so we get this scene later where uh, the one-armed man uh, gets captured again by Hawk. Hawk just has to keep getting sent after him so many times in this show. Hawk is running around all over the he place. He's doing all the work of the police force. Literally, as you were, <laughs> you made a comment as we were watching, Hawk is the only police officer. Everyone else is an actor. And I'm kind of <laughs> led to believe that because Andy, we only see him if it's about Lucy these days. And yeah. Truman is off trying to figure out Josie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cooper's having Audrey shenanigans. The only one doing any law enforcement in this entire town is Hawk. He, he is consistently everywhere at once, throwing axes and, and, and knives at people who are, who are about to do evil. He's like the Batman of Twin Peaks. So <laughs> he doesn't even need to hide his identity. He's too powerful. Yes. Uh, he brings the one-armed man back, and they have the one-armed man cycle around Ben, just kind of sniffing him out. And, uh, you know, he says he, he's been close, but Bob is not here now. And I just like that there's no explanation that we're aware of offered to, to uh, Ben and Jerry. Jerry's just like, I, he's, Jerry's so confused about what's happening. <laughs> but they're also at such a point where they don't even, like, question it that much. Yes. Like, they should be really concerned that this is happening. Yeah, but yeah. they're just kind of like, what is this? What is this? Like, Knock it off. What's going on? Like, could you, he's looking like at Ben like he's a dog biscuit. Yeah. And and in spite of the one our man not so convinced that uh, that uh, that that it is Bob, uh, and Cooper also doesn't indicate really confidence that this is the killer. Uh, the sheriff does step forward and says he's charging Ben Horn with murder of Laura Palmer, uh, which prompts Ben to comment that he is a two bit lumberjack, which yes. I like as an insult. I actually, think this is a pretty good insult. <laughs> he is a two bit lumberjack. Uh, Hawk is told to bring the one our man back to the hotel, the Great Northern, nail all the windows shut, two men at the door. Yeah. So again, keeping the man off his meds, locking him up. The legality of all this is very curious. Yeah, is this a uh, bookhouse boys operation, or is this uh, FBI operation, or is what is this actually the Twin Peaks it, PD? It it turns out that it's probably going to be leaning a little bit on bookhouse boys. And as mentioned before, with the give Mister Gerard his drugs incident that we mentioned before, mm-hmm. Truman is at his breaking point with Cooper. About his mumbo-jumbo, his dreams, the visions, the dwarves, the giants, Tibet, and the rest of the hocus-pocus in his words. How durable will this great bond we've talked up in this whole series, mm-hmm. how, how durable will that be? Because with, with this like statement, like he blows up on Cooper, and Cooper states, You're right, Harry. This is your backyard. Sometimes... An outsider can forget that. Truman has this, like, thousand-year-old stare, just looks off as, like, Cooper walks away. Mm -hmm. 
And it's questionable whether or not, like, he might be questioning something like this, whether or not he might just kind of put doubts in himself, like, okay, maybe I was a bit hard on that, or it looks like he's lost and trying to figure something out, but whatever side of the fence he is on that, mm-hmm. we're unsure at the moment. Do you feel that, uh, what do you think Cooper's intentions were when he said that uh, sometimes an outsider can forget that? Do you believe Cooper meant that as kind of a, a dig at Truman to make him feel bad? Do you think Truman's feelings, I'm sorry, do you think Cooper's feelings are actually hurt? Or do you think he didn't mean anything by it? Um, I don't think that Cooper, I don't think Cooper is the one to be spiteful enough or try to dig at Truman. Mm-hmm. I think that he is honest when he says that sometimes an outsider can forget that. I don't believe that he's not unhurt by it either. I think that there's also that sort of point in which he has to respect his business and respect what his job entitles and what Truman's job entitles. Mm-hmm. That when confronted with Audrey later on, he makes the statement that like what he thinks really doesn't matter in this situation. Well, and in Cooper's side, having Audrey back, he blamed himself immediately for his failure to basically uphold his duty is what got Audrey in this situation in the first place. So right now, Cooper might be at a low point, feeling like he is not succeeding right now. Even Gordon Cole notices that uh, Cooper's not quite doing well. Albert had recommended that Cooper maybe not be taking this case anymore. And Mm -hmm. as if Cooper's not already in a low spot... Whether he was hurt by Truman or not, he he indicated he feels like an outsider, potentially. We then get, near the end of the episode, more unfortunate news for Cooper and his investigation. So we end the episode with Cooper in the hotel room of the Great Northern. It's about 11.03 p.m., I believe. And uh, one of the rare examples oh, that we have, a, we, we're certain of the time that we're on. Oh, oh, oh. One thing I did want to mention, uh, speaking of numbers, uh, one thing that I want to appreciate. I, I know that sun tone shift, but let me have this. Always time for numerology when it comes to David Lynch. So do you remember Leland's license? Yep. Exactly. Seven, <laughs> ten, yep. That's my joke. Yeah. I, I, I'm not one who knows numerology that well, so I don't know if seven, ten has any significance in either individual numbers or collective numbers. Uh I, I kind of want to look into it, but regardless, just having, yep, is kind of the reaction that I get whenever I'm seeing a new side of Leland now, so. <laughs> so you could argue something weird if you want to really stretch things. I don't really believe this, but 710, you add those up, that is 8, and 1103, if you subtract 3 from 11, that is 8. Mm-hmm. I don't think that means anything. Nope, but, but. <laughs> but both can potentially be 8. Good. <laughs> <laughs> in which this is the eighth episode of season two, but technically That's the true. 13th episode of the series. So, ah. Uh, I don't think it means anything. I don't think I either. really don't. But there's a lot of fans who do like to look at numbers, and uh, especially when we get into the return, there's numbers. I'll just say that. <laughs> um, there are numbers. There's the concept of numbers. Numbers shall exist in some capacity. Um, so when Cooper is in the uh, room, he has his comfort food on his bedside. Which, can we appreciate this? Because something that popped into my head that I didn't realize before, Cooper's comfort drink when he goes to sleep is just like, just plain milk. Just, That's what the milkman brought milk. in, yeah. Yep, the milkman brought in some plain milk. Maybe it is a vanilla milkshake, but regardless, it is pure white and it has milk likely. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, his go-to drink, how he prefers his coffee... 
like whenever he gets up and starts to do his job, is um, I I couldn't quite I can't look up quotes unfortunately, mm-hmm. but paraphrasing it is black as the night sky on the moonless night. Close enough. Yeah. So black as midnight on a moonless night. Yeah. So regardless, like having this interesting like deep contrast for when he's active and when he is trying to go to bed, uh-huh. I find is very. See, and I would even, I would argue that I don't even think that was on purpose, but that doesn't change the fact that it's in the text. Again, <laughs> I would I would argue that whether they even intended that contrast, it works. It does. We can do stuff with it. It reminds me a lot of the Chevron <laughs> pattern, the black and white, the uh-huh. idea of of night and day, but being inverted. Because oh the, no, the, the, Chevron black white. I'm going mad with the comparisons. Well, just the I just again the idea that uh, there's this kind of frenetic contrast that's been inverted and uh, you know that the day is black and the night is white the and red, also that in the red room they speak backwards there's an inversion there's red curtains and curtains are oftentimes presented as showy and we see how people present themselves through the means of blood which is also a red in color curtains are showy yeah yeah you thinking, know curtain, like you open up the red curtains and that's how okay. you present and i was thinking cur- curtains conceal Either way, there's the sense of something behind it's something the revealed you, and, from and, behind and the curtain. To be fair, David Lynch loves The Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> no, he loves Wizard of Oz. I'm sure it is. It is basically his Bible. You know who also uh, loved Wizard of Oz? The people who made Six String Samurai. Gwen. Uh, <laughs> Gwen likes Wizard of Oz. Uh, <laughs> how does that make you feel? Um, so we we get, we get once again returning to the beginning of that scene. Uh, he he's talking to into his uh, tape recorder as usual, talking to Diane, and he says that he feels like he's approaching the end of this journey, but the last few steps are always the darkest and most difficult. So again, sensing this sort of tone in Cooper lately that he's kind of down on himself and down on what's ahead, but also confident that the journey is about to end, that there is a sense of conclusion coming up soon. He feels. Mm-hmm. Um. He has the wrapping over his gunshot wound, kind of a physical reminder that he's still in recovery mode from mm-hmm. what happened earlier in the season, at the end of season one. Uh, odd, there's a knock on the door. Cooper has a weapon in hand in case he gets, you know, someone at the door trying to shoot him again. He's learned that lesson. Yeah. And it's Audrey at the door who starts asking kind of about her father, the arrest, if what she had done was helpful. Yeah, there's... <laughs> Cooper's reactions are interesting. We already had the conversation of lies and whether or not you do interpret anything he might say to Audrey as truth or kind lies, Mm -hmm. he does convince or attempts to convince Audrey that Ben did love her. She says that all she wanted was for him to love her. And Cooper is convinced that Ben did love her. And uh, she's certain that, um, that he's ashamed of her and... Cooper says he disagrees. I'll get on my soapbox a little bit because, I, I mean, Cooper's the main one I want to focus on here, but I, I do believe, Audrey, that that is actually something that, whether she always knew that's what she wanted or recent events have made it clearer to her what she's really wanted this whole time, but the idea that all of her acting out, all of the things she's been doing throughout this show, her main motivation is to get her father to notice and love her. There's this consistent idea that Ben was aware of Laura and had an interest in Laura. Obviously we know that it did have a darker sexual connotation toward the end of her life, but the photographs he has of Laura in the office and some stuff that we'll get to later that I, I'm not really spoiling anything, but just there's a sense in for Audrey that she understood Laura. She understood kind of Laura's ability to get what she wanted. And I think Audrey looked at that and saw that, 
in Laura, there was this sense of someone who could get her father's attention. And the sad part is that it works in two meanings. She could get Audrey's father's attention, something Audrey didn't get. It seems like Ben might've noticed Laura more than her, but also Laura got her own father's attention, which has a darker connotation than Audrey could ever have realized. In truth, like as far as Laura goes, we do not know how far her influence goes. Right. And I, I love Jerry's comment on when it, regarding Laura, that when they got Ben's blood, he says that uh, Laura's fingerprints yeah. could be on your blood. Yeah. And I really do think that Audrey's motivations being boiled down to, you know, daddy issues might be kind of cliche in a certain sense. But I think it fits why she wants this mysterious FBI agent to whisk her away on this adventure. Because in Cooper, you see someone who is powerful in a suit, this strong older man. Uh, again, the Freud in me is kind of starting to tick some boxes right now. And kind of, you know, this really well-spoken, philosophical man, again, ticking some boxes for me right now with her father. I think that the way she's kind of wanted to find closure in what happened to Laura fits into that again and again, that I do believe that Audrey, whether she always knew it or just knew it now, yeah, that's what she's always wanted. And it's been corrupted now because now that she knows who her father is, does she still want that affection? Mm -hmm. I don't know. We'll have to find out. We'll have to find out. Um, Cooper's conversation with Audrey, unfortunately, is cut very short by the piercing ring of a phone uh, where he... We don't hear what's on the receiving end. We don't hear what the other person's saying to him. But we do have him then immediately tell Audrey to go to her room, lock the door, and we go to Cooper meeting the police department in kind of an undisclosed location at night. And what do they find but wrapped in plastic, Maddie Ferguson? Yes. And uh, the way it's shot, it, it obviously lingers on the image of Maddie, very similar to episode one or the pilot with, with Laura wrapped in plastic. But there's almost this sort of shaky camera shot we get briefly of Cooper's reaction to discovering the Maddie body where it does again, it doesn't linger on Cooper, but Cooper kind of looks up like he's almost trying to figure out something. He's looking up. He's kind of lost almost. At least that's the, that's the emotion I read into it that he looked up and it's just like, yeah, I failed. You know, I read failure into this. I think that it's also interesting how this is shot because it's very similar, like in the case of Laura being found in a plastic bag inside the river. But the difference is literally night and day because for one, like we saw the body during the daytime and Laura it's a was very, found in the morning. She was found in the morning and it was this very, I'd call it slow. In which, like, mm -hmm. as, like, the body is discovered, we get the slow picture shots. We kind of linger on this while there's just some mild conversation. Yeah. Meanwhile, there's a lot of tension when we find Maddie. It's completely dark, and when the reveal does happen, it still kind of, like, feels uh, claustrophobic almost, as opposed to the more open area uh, and shots of when we first found Laura. I think this is an excellent episode. It really does leave me curious how much Mark Frost and David Lynch had contributed the ideas that went to this episode. I'm, I will continue to say throughout this podcasting series that I think a lot of times people feel that Lynch is the main creator. He's the most important one. And I think sometimes they overlook the fact that a lot of great episodes, at least what I consider a great episode, um, may not have much to do with Lynch at all. Uh, Lynch sets a tone that the other writers and creators have continued. It also makes me personally curious knowing that this is written by Scott Frost. It makes me very curious since I have never read Diane. I've never read my life, my tapes. I'm curious because this is the Cooper 
that he's writing. You know what I mean? Like this, this episode was written by the guy who writes Cooper's perspective. Yes. Makes me very curious for the future. Yes. I'm very excited for when we do cover these books because again, they sit on my shelf and I look at them <laughs> and they call to me, but I cannot answer their call. Don't listen to the voice. Don't go closer. Um, <laughs> I know that, uh, I've referred to Leland as the killer. You're not 100%. You're 99% convinced that that is an accurate way to describe Leland toward Laura being her killer. So there is that still fragment of doubt. Now, mind you, the thing is, is that it's confirmed that Leland did kill Maddie, like, on yes. screen. And I'm still convinced, like, Maddie is uh, Laura Palmer. So in some respects... Yes, uh, he did kill. But the presented Laura Palmer, right. whether or not that is Maddie Ferguson. The one we see in the pilot, yeah. The one in the pilot. So, that's the one I'm curious on still. Do you want me to still ask you the famous question we always ask? Absolutely. On? Then, in the words of Gwen, at some point she's probably asked this, who killed Laura Palmer? <laughs> um, I will say that at this moment, no one killed Laura Palmer because... Ooh, plot twist. Turns out that Laura had a second cousin twice removed that she had The Shining with as well. That... <laughs> I saw The Shining today. Yeah, you saw me. The Shining. And everyone's going to know. <laughs> you will not let anyone forget that you saw The Shining. That uh, it, she was connected with. It turns out, woo, she swapped her spot with Mad, uh, Cousin Maddie with her. So we're going to get second cousin twice removed, Jennifer will get either the letters E or R in her na uh, nail later. And that is the Laura Palmer. Interesting that you would choose the name uh, the Jennifer because uh, David Lynch, the director, one of the directors, one of the writers, he has a daughter named Jennifer Lynch. <laughs> Make of that what you will. <laughs> probably as it's probably as significant as 1103 and 710. Yep. <laughs> the number uh, eight. Thank you very much for uh, for joining us. And as always, dear listener, we would love to hear from you. Uh, reminder that our email is snakeeyedreams at gmail.com. That is snakeeyedreams with one D. And then our Twitter is snakeeyedreams with the numeral one. So snakeeyedreams1 at twitter.com. Uh, shoot us a message. Let us know your thoughts on Toad, or anything else you want to say, but really Toad. Let us know your thoughts on 710 Yep. And so, listeners, in mood of Leland, we will now say goodbye. 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 So tone deaf. I love it.